If you have a Bible, regardless of how you may have that phone, tablet, uh, maybe you brought an actual Bible this morning, pages, open it to the latter portion or the end of John 18. We're going to look at a couple of verses that end John 18 and then a couple of verses that begin John 19. For today is the day when we rally around in a more intentional way to be reminded, even as the angels communicated, why are you looking for the living among the dead? For he is not here. He is risen, just as he told you. God is faithful to what it is that God wants. And we need to be reminded every day, but especially in this moment, that the work that he has begun in you, he is committed to it. That the work that he has started because of the price that he has paid, because of the eternal desire that he has, he is faithful. And he is faithful to not just start something, but to see it all the way through to completion. And we understand that it is this eternal desire, this longing that God has to reveal himself or to be known. And not just to be known, but to be known and then to share himself with a people forever and ever and ever in the place of eternity that moved him to do what we recognize no other would have ever been able to do for the son of man, the heavenly man, Jesus, the son, we understand has left the throne room to come to the womb, ended up in an empty tomb and has been ascended and exalted once again back to his rightful place at the right hand once again in the throne room. And we know that he did what no other could do, but he did not simply do it because no other could do it. He did it because it was always the plan for him to do it. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world deserved a family, a people that he could share himself with and be glorified in for all of eternity. And his father promised it to him. And Jesus cried out for it, even on the eve, when he knew that his betrayal, humiliation, crucifixion was upon him. He said, I must have this people. He said, for I long for them to be with me where I am, that they might behold my glory and that I might be able to reveal or unveil myself to them forever and ever and ever. And that they be awestruck, awe-inspired, wowed by what it is that I am going to show them or display to them. What angels already recognize, what elders already bow down to and cast their crowns. What heavenly creatures behold and erupt with the heavenly anthem, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's no one like you. We've never seen anything that compares to you. But this is what he wanted. He wanted a people. And not just a people with all of the empty religious hoops and formalities. But he wanted a people that he would be glorified in the midst of. Because they would be something that they could never be. And they would live in a way that humanity had no shot to ever be able to live in. A new version of humanity that would live in a quality and a power of real and resurrected life that because of the inheritance of sin had crippled its hopes to ever be able to cross the threshold of their own demands or their own fleshly abilities. But Jesus has done it. He has overcome. And as we look at the end of John chapter 18, we find something that all four gospel accounts bear witness to. We find Jesus before the high priest. We find Jesus before Pilate. We find Jesus before the angry, hostile mob or the crowd. And at the end of John chapter 18, leading into John chapter 19, it's the interaction between Jesus and Pilate. And Jesus has submitted himself joyfully to the process that his father has designed for him. He's prayed blood out of his face in the pressing of intercession in the garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the mount 
at the base of where he knows one day coming, he will return riding upon the cloud in glory and authority with the host of heaven to recompense men and to bring his reward for those that honored him and loved him and lived their lives for him. But here he is standing before a man that believes that he has earthly authority. And Jesus reminds him that the only reason that these things may seem to be is because his father has already ordained it to be this way. And he stands before Pilate and coming down towards the end. Let's pick it up in verse 33. If you have John 18, it says, then Pilate entered the praetorium again and he called Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him. Are you speaking for yourself about these matters or did someone else tell you about me? And Pilate answered him, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered him, my kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. And for this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. And do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then they all cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a robber. He was a criminal. And as you turn it into John 19, in response to this, it says, so then Pilate took Jesus and he scourged him and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe and they said to him, mocking him, hail king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands and Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. And the Jews answered. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. We understand that Jesus just didn't die the death that all of us deserved. He also lived the life that none of us ever could. Jesus didn't just surrender himself to death that happened to him. He was able to do that because the hostility of death had already been put to death on the inside of him. I would suggest to you and possibly submit to you that there's a Barabbas on the inside of each and every one of us. I would submit to you that there's a mob on the inside of each and every one of us that demands that Barabbas be able to live. Because throughout the history of the age, in any point when God has chosen to reveal himself, it is the inheritance of sin that puts a demand on us being able to rule over our own life and to live our life by our own desires and our own demands. And at times when the intersection of our own demands and absolute surrender to God 
finds a point or a intersection and a confrontation. There is something on the inside of us in moments that still cries out for our own way. There were two thieves on the cross and it's the response of humanity. The response of humanity being crucified next to Jesus will cry out one or the other. They will say, I know I deserve this and I know that you don't. And I know that you're giving your life for me and that because I'm choosing to anchor my trust, my hope, my dependency in you, that even though I may have to face the grave, even though I will breathe my last and my time in this flesh and upon this earth as I know it on this side of life will come to a moment that is final for it is appointed unto every man a moment, a time, a day to die. Every single one of us are going to have to face the grave and give an account as we stand before the beauty of this man. Every one of us are going to have this face off. We're going to have this glimpse where we will realize in its fullest measure how beautiful, how majestic, how exalted and glorified Jesus actually is and how worthy of our lives he actually is. And the thief says, I know that I deserve this and you don't, but I'm choosing to anchor my trust in you. And I'm believing that if I give my life to you by way of yielding the fullness of my heart, that where you will be this day in your kingdom, that I will be there with you. And Jesus says, you shall be with me today in paradise. But it's the other man mocking, criticizing, knowing that he's deserving because of the life that he's lived, knowing that there's a price that should be paid, knowing that there's a hostile rebel. At times there's a criminal alive on the inside that will not find itself subject to the rule of Jesus as king. It's the other man mocking him. It's the other man saying, I know that I deserve this, but I'm still choosing not to believe in you. And against all of this, there's the voice of the mob or the crowd. When Pilate trying his best to find a reason to live in response to the demand of the pressure of the fleshly life comes back out to the crowd and he says, even though the pressure of this flesh wants to put a demand to have your way with him, I find no fault in him. And still yet they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. It's amazing to me that Jesus's wisdom the wisdom of the cross, the wisdom which the rulers of the age did not understand. For had they understood it, they never would have crucified the king of glory. They would have never nailed Jesus to the cross if they understood that God's wisdom was to underpower the hostility of the world. If they understood that God had a wisdom that was transcendent to all of our fleshly desires and demands. If they would have known that what God was actually choosing to do willfully and joyfully was to pay the price for the punishment of the sins that were being created against him. It is mind boggling to me that as they're nailing Jesus to the cross, he's praying, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't have power to live any other way. They're bound to the Barabbas that lives on the inside of them. They're a prisoner to the fleshly indulgences, to the demands, to all of what is inherent in humanity, to want to be Lord of their own lives and to live out of the response of what we think is best as we are ruling and governing over all of our own demands and desires. Forgive them, Lord, because they don't actually have power to be anything else and therefore they can't live any other way because that was the prison cell of humanity. To have to live by way of impulse, to have to live trapped to all of what is inherent by way of sin, which is the rejection of God's love and leadership. It's the demand that we know best and we should be able to rule over our own lives. 
And at any point when there's a confrontation with another way, our demand is to crucify him, crucify him. This wasn't the first instance when God revealed himself and humanity rejected him. In Exodus 19, when God came down upon the mount, what did they say? They said, we choose Moses. We don't want to deal with what it is that's being revealed. God came down. In love, God revealed himself. In love, God gave them an invitation. Come to me. Come up the mount to be with me. Give yourselves to me. And they said, we don't want you. Because there's something about the revelation of God that puts a demand that we relinquish our desire for control. Because God will not be controlled. God will not be controlled even by the best of us. If he is not Lord, then he is nothing at all. If he is not king, then he is nothing at all. He's not your homeboy. He's not a lover. He's not a buddy. He is King Jesus and he is Lord of all creation. And this is the beginning point. It is where it starts. And if any man would come, he must first find the grace from God to deny himself. In Exodus 19, they said, we don't want anything to do with you. Give us Moses. We better identify with Moses because he's one of us. He is like us. He's broken like us. He has weaknesses like us. We better identify with someone who's as frail as we are, who's as challenged as we are, who in the moment of temptation or weaknesses can come up with excuses or exemptions the same way that we do. We better identify with Moses because as a man, he lives his life the same way that we do. And as a reference point, we better identify with him because he then gives me the ability to rule over the conversation the way that I want to. And in the moment when God is once again revealing himself, Pilate says, it is a custom that I release someone to you every Passover. And do you want this man who claims to be the king of the Jews, the Christ? who claims to be the anointed one, the son of man. And they say, no, give us Barabbas. Interestingly enough, Barabbas, when you break it down, is a two-part word. Bar, if you remember, in Matthew 16, when Peter has this wonderful revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Spirit gives him ownership of a place of seeing something in Jesus that the Father has revealed to him. And Jesus says, you shall no longer be Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means the son of. And Jesus was telling him in Matthew 16, you'll no longer be Simon, the son of Jonah. Well, if you connect that to Bar-Abbas, you now find that Bar-Abbas means the son of the Father. Abba meaning father. And in a moment when the choice was to be made and Pilate was offering them the son of man, the true son of the father, the anointed one, the Christ, the one who is the lamb that was slain, the one who with eternal longing, desiring a people for himself, a family that he could possess and share himself joyfully with in the place of eternity. The one who with a burn in his heart desired a bride so much so that he thinks she's to die for. The moment when humanity had once again the option, did not choose the true son of the father, but said, give us the criminal, give us the murderer, give us the fugitive, give us the one who's broken, give us the one who's crippled by weakness. Give us this Barabbas that humanity is always going to produce. Give us this image of the son of the father that humanity lies in a prison cell bound to. Give us this representation of creation because we better identify with a man who is being strangled by his weaknesses but yet finds a justification in the conversation to never have to be something else because he is only looking at himself and others. 
But we understand that those who stand beside us are no longer the reference point. But it's the man who has been exalted above us, who chose to become one of us. Jesus, while being nailed to a tree, says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was not bound by death that was alive on the inside of him. But there was a quality of life and a power revealed through his character, meaning his way of actually living and fleshing out his power source from the inside that everyone was able to see in great demonstration as he created a touch point with other people and then the circumstances that he went through. Though they sinned against him, Jesus would not retaliate and choose sin back to them. Because sin was not alive on the inside of him. He told them in John 14, though the enemy of the world is coming, I'm not afraid for he has nothing in me. He was saying, I'm different than you. I'm not bound to the corruption or the impulses. I'm not bound to the sinful inheritance to want to rule over your own life. For I delight to do my father's will. And though they sinned against him, he would not choose sin as a retaliation to them. But this is part of the crippling effect of the human sinful inheritance. Is that there at times is a Barabbas that's alive on the inside. There's the hostile mob that wants to give voice demanding our own way and choosing to justifiably do so. Because we are very aware with sin that happens to us, but yet sin happening to us creates sin within us. And we're not actually free enough to live from the mob and the hostility and the demands on the inside to live by God's grace in the life and the power of Jesus's resurrection that would give us what we can't ever do for ourselves to live as a demonstration in the world in a way that will be a sign and a wonder the same way that it was when Jesus did it himself. But we choose out of our pain to live out of our pain and then to justify behaviors, mindsets, relationally interacting with and connecting with others. We choose to justify because of sin that's happened to us, sin coming alive in us. And though we deal with burden, weaknesses, though we deal with the crippling effect of this fleshly inheritance and we know at times that we're prisoners and rather than beholding him and surrendering to him we try to justify our position we try to raise our voice a little louder we try to place a greater demand that Barabbas be able to live but even against the crowd even against the hostility of humanity Jesus chooses to willingly offer himself. Have you realized yet that in the moment of your greatest weakness, the darkest hour of your life, when trial abounds and the pressure of the crippling effect of sin is real and strangling the quality of life that we live, do you realize that it's in the most hopeless moment in the bottom of the ninth when it seems like humanity is doomed to be lost, that God keeps on giving himself to you. This is his choice. Rather than retaliate against you, he chooses to give himself to you. He chooses to offer his life once again. He recognizes our weakness, our brokenness, our inability and our insufficiency. And rather than humiliating you and retaliating against you, he chooses once again to be put on public display to offer his life for you. And Jesus chooses that day 
to be nailed to the cross. Because you see what the mob doesn't realize is that Barabbas is not the only criminal that is going to find freedom on that Passover. They think that by crucifying Jesus and putting a demand on Barabbas, that he's going to be the only prisoner that gets set free. But what they don't actually realize is that the lamb that was slain, about to be nailed to that tree, lifted high and stretched wide, mocked and humiliated, beaten and spit on, criticized and crucified, was offering his life so that every prisoner throughout this side of the history of the age would be able to find a freedom that other way humanity would never ever be able to see or experience. And this is what we've gathered round today to celebrate. What is reality is that Jesus had offered his life and the first fruits of the son of man. For unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it will never be able to reproduce of itself or to be multiplied. And he has been raised. And with Jesus, the hope of humanity to be something more and real and deep and authentic and powerful than we would ever have been able to know. All of our days of hiding behind the bush and trembling and leaning away from the revealing on the mount and running from Jesus are over. Now, because of what Jesus has done, we can, like Pilate said to them, behold this man. And in beholding this man, he has made a way to have what it is that he wants. A new creation that becomes a family for him. And because hostility has died on the inside of them, all of the hostility and the enmity and the walls of division have been conquered between them. And they can now choose by the life and the grace of God on the inside to no longer be a prisoner to the sinful impulse that used to govern our lives. But now in the same way, we too can live a resurrected reality. For we are seated with him in heavenly places. We are raised above the prison cell of our fleshly impulses. We are a spirit people. And when we live by the spirit and walk in the spirit, we have power no longer having to satisfy or gratify the lustful impulses of our fleshly man. This is what Jesus has done. He has created a people for himself. And this people now are a sign and a wonder because their lives are no longer governed by the demand to have it their way. Their lives are no longer governed by all of their own fleshly desires and the justification of the conversation that they can create in order for the criminal on the inside and the criminalistic desires to be able to prevail. But now through beholding this man, we can look upon the one who was raised we can look upon the one who is ascended and exalted on high. And we too, through the life that he gives, can conquer the self-life through the receiving of divine life. And we can be what no one of us will ever have the hope to be in our own strength, by our own intellect, with the accumulation of our own worldly riches, with all of our relational jockeying and the perfection of the conversations that we can create in order to resist a more beautiful place of beholding, which would bring us to a greater place to submit to his lordship in our lives. I felt as if the Lord wanted us to look at these passages afresh this morning so that if there be anything alive on the inside of us, who like what we just read identifies with being confronted with the reference point of the humility and the majesty of this man, Jesus,
To see him rightly is to respond to him rightly. And to see him rightly on that day, they saw him rightly, but they were offended by what they saw because they could not identify by what God let them see. And at times this is the wrestling of the inheritance. You're not like me. You're holy. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. You're nothing like me. And it's so confronting. It's so challenging because at times I want to be more like me. But when I see you, it puts a demand that you're not trying to be like me, but that you actually want to change me to be more like you. And the resistance of actually seeing him without submitting to him is what creates this crucify him, crucify him out of the hardening of our hearts. But you don't get to choose the revelation of Jesus that is more accommodating to you. No one of us gets to choose a better catering to him on our own terms. He has created the terms and the plumb line has been laid down because his life has been buried and God has raised him up. He has not only resurrected him, but he has ascended lifted upon the cloud into the heavens and we will all see him again when he comes. And the cry of humanity from the very beginning has been the only way that I get my own way is if he be crucified. Crucify him, crucify him. Give me Barabbas. It's time that we make Jesus the standard. And what I mean by that is no one of us should be looking at Barabbas. No one of us should be looking even at the thief that yielded his heart to Jesus on that day when he was crucified next to him. Because I'll tell you, there's only one man that's worthy of my life. And regardless of the fame of a pastor, regardless of the power of of a system and a man that it might exalt. There is no man on the inside of a system. There is no man that's able to garner the attention of the world that will ever be worth it. There is one man that is worth it. And there is one man that puts a demand on all of our heart and all of our life. And the terms have not changed since that day. Behold this man and give him everything. And in doing that, he will take the broken pieces of our life and he will transform them. And he will make you what you cannot make yourself. And all of the religious jockeying behind bushes as it was for Adam and Eve behind systems and structures as it would for the Pharisees. All of the religious hiding, just knowing how to perfect the conversation or compare ourselves by ourselves. All of the hostility on the inside of humanity that puts a demand on Barabbas, a demand that he live because I more identify with his criminal I more identify with his weakness. He's more like me. And so I want him to live rather than being confronted by the one who ever lives and desires to give me his life to conquer the demand that I get my own way in life. I just felt as if the Lord wanted us together as a people to take heed to the offer that Pilate gave them that day in a fresh way. Behold this man, crowned, robed, humiliated, crucified, exalted, enthroned, glorified forever. And on putting our eyes in a fresh way upon this man, if there be any area of our hearts where we are resisting a greater place of surrender and subjection to the Lordship of Jesus, 
that we would offer our heart afresh this morning. That we would choose rather than living out of the continued sinful impulses, our own fleshly maneuvering, demanding our own way, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and look upon his wonderful face and choose to put the anchor of our hope and our dependency in this one who is the king of all creation. And through the offering of our hearts, recognize that those are there, though there is a Barabbas that's alive on the inside, the only way that he is actually set free is if Jesus be crucified for me. Because though they might have thought they set Barabbas free that day, Barabbas still had no power to be anything other than Barabbas. For the only way that Barabbas is really set free is because of Jesus being crucified for me. And me putting my faith in Jesus and no longer just the fleshly belief that I will always be a prisoner to being Barabbas. Let me tell you today, if there's any brokenness, weakness, if there's any crippling of the effect of sin, if there's any dominating of fleshly desire that you are going through in a perpetual way and your answer to it has been to just continue to satisfy the conversation by repositioning yourself or the terms or to distance yourself from the one that is the standard, then I would suggest to you that you come out of the conversation of Barabbas and look fresh upon the man Jesus and to realize that the only way that Barabbas really gets set free is by Jesus being crucified and by you actually turning to Jesus and giving your heart and your life to Jesus and surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus and receiving the life of the Spirit of Jesus and receiving the grace through the Spirit of Jesus to actually transform you to live in a resurrected power and reality. That's the only way. And the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, one more time, is offering for us to choose the way. We're going to take communion together, and we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask us all to stand up, and those that are helping with communion, um, if we could begin to pass, we're just going to take communion right where we are. Because these are the terms. And Jesus laid down the terms when the crowd gathered round him in John chapter 6. He said, if you want to go where I'm going and go my way. It's not just that we claim to go where he's going, but we have to go his way. It's on his terms. He says, if you want to go where I'm going, then you have to go my way. And in John chapter six, when the crowd rallied around him, awed by the miracles and desiring to get something more from him, he said, this is the way. Eat my flesh and drink my blood and take my life into you. Paul told them in 1 Corinthians six seventeen. The one who has given himself to the Lord, the two have become one in spirit. The exalted Jesus of Ephesians chapter one now has set a people free to no longer live by the sinful inheritance or for the powers of the air to prevail in their hearts and in their way of life. Ephesians chapter two. In Ephesians chapter 3 is Jesus now has this people that live as a demonstration. The church, Ephesians 3.10, bears the responsibility to live as a sign and a wonder because God has done what no other could do and he's raised up a people that are really free 
free from the inside. So they live free for God to determine the terms on the outside. And even unto the losing of their own lives, they choose him. They honor him by life or by death because they overcome the wicked one through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And today as we gather as the family of Jesus, the bride that he is readying for his great day of possession, I just ask you, have you truly yielded your heart to him? Listen, we don't get to create the terms. I didn't ask you if you frequent church gatherings and you know the lyrics to worship songs. This cultural Christianity, this Western entertainment based, satisfying the demands that I have, that still wants to let Barabbas live and just redefine the terms of following Jesus, where it gets to be on my terms and not his, where it gets to be Jesus died for me. No, Jesus died for the desire that Jesus had. That's why Jesus died. Jesus came to do what nobody else could do so that he could have what it is that he's always wanted. That's what he did. He didn't offer his life so that we could live a rebellious life. That's not grace. And those aren't the terms. He didn't offer his life so that I could live as Barabbas and just make excuses for a fleshly life. He gave his life so that I could receive his life and now live a life that my old life would have never been able to produce. And these are the terms. I have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. By his sacrifice, I have to anchor the hope of my heart and life in the price that was paid for me. And I have to choose him as king and surrender my heart and now live in a constant way by his terms. But is this how we're living? Have you surrendered your life? And is your heart's desire to live by his terms? If not, we have an opportunity once again this morning. If not, like the crowd that day when Pilate told them, behold the man, we have a choice as to what the lifting of our voice is going to give voice to. Will we cry out like the mob did? Crucify him, crucify him. Because he's so confronting to the way that I want to live. Seeing him is challenging to me and me being able to be Lord of my life. The way that he reveals himself, crucified on a tree, mocked and criticized for me, taken from the stick, laid in the grave, raised on the third day, ascended, heart on fire, relentless to your last breath to pursue you, not just so that you could have you, but to pursue you, to joyfully love you until you come to the end of you. This Jesus, will our voice join with them? Crucify him, crucify him. Because I can't see him and still do what I want to do. Or, like the thief crucified next to him, do you say, I know I deserve it, but there's no hope that I ever have to change unless you are who you say you are. And this sacrifice that you're making is actually going to accomplish what you say it's going to accomplish. Though I have to face the grave, I know that on the other side of this life, I'm going to be with you in your kingdom. We have a choice in just a moment to what our voice is going to give voice to. Will you choose to reject the way that God reveals himself? Or will you choose to yield to him? Not on your own terms, 
but on his. The offering of your life. It is life for life and yours doesn't come first. Because he has offered his life, we can now give him ours. Not in religiosity, but in authenticity. Not trying to hide the blemishes, but bringing them to him. Not trying to renegotiate the terms of the brokenness, but realizing that we find our wholeness in this man that was broken on my behalf. We have a choice to behold this man and then in our own hearts to come to a decision about him. And so as we hold these elements this morning, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Before we pray over the bread and over the blood, I'm going to ask each one of us to search our hearts. Who rules your life? Who's really enthroned in your heart? It's not 25% Jesus. It's not 90% Jesus. It's all Jesus or no Jesus at all. We're seated with him in heavenly places, but he's not sharing his enthronement in, his, in your heart with you. He's not looking to share the throne of your heart with any other. There's only room for one lover. And if it's not him, then it's not him. Before we pray, I want to ask each and every one of us a question that is probably the most important question that we will ever have to give an answer to. And in your own heart, before the Lord, as I believe, the Holy Spirit is revealing him to your heart right here, right now, this morning. And like Pilate said on that great day, behold the man. I feel like this is the invitation of the Spirit right now. The Holy Spirit is saying to you right now, behold the man, the man Jesus. And what is the response of your heart? Have you given it all to him? Have you surrendered your weakness, your brokenness, your strengths, your dreams? Because at times we're, we're very able and willing to surrender brokenness and weakness. But have you surrendered dreams, ambitions, desires? All of what you feel capable of doing, even at times independent of him. He wants it all. And so I'm going to ask us before we take these elements. I'm going to take just a quick moment and I'm going to pray for you. And then I'm going to ask for a response. But not just for my sake because it ain't about me and I'm not worth it. But before the Lord. If there's any one of us who have not in, an, in a real way, yielded our heart to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus. We're not Christian because we don't want to be Buddhist and we just don't like the other options on the list. You can claim to be a Christian and never have actually met the Christ. You can attend the gatherings, memorize the songs, give in offerings, quote scripture verses from time to time. But this morning, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to give an opportunity to meet the Christ through beholding him and yielding your heart to this man, Jesus. And so Holy Spirit, I pray just that. All over 
this space that we are gathered. Would you right now do what, as a matter of fact, no one of us can do? Would you open up the eyes of our hearts to be able to see this man, Jesus? Would you open up the eyes of our hearts to be able to behold him? Would you open up the eyes of our hearts to once again look on this man and his sacrifice, his love that brought him to pay the price for me? Holy Spirit, make it personal. This isn't just for the global body, for some universal system of Christianity. Make it personal this morning, Holy Spirit. This man beaten and bloodied, mocked, beaten, spit on, left for dead. Make it personal. He did it for my brokenness. He did it for my rejection of him. He did it for the voice on the inside of me that cries out, crucify him. He did it for the rebel that lives in me that says, I don't want anything to do with him. Give me Barabbas. You paid the price for the punishment of the sins that I created against you. Holy Spirit, make it personal. And I'm asking you, help us to see this man. Help us to see this man and bring our hearts. Give us grace. Bring our hearts to the place where you are empowering our decision for him. Make it personal. Make it real. May it go deeper than we've ever known. Before we take these elements, I want to ask you. Have you given him your life? Have you given him your life? Again, not this cultural Americanized Christianity stuff. Have you given him your life and is he Lord? Have you given him your life? Or are you still trying to rule over it, masking it with a Jesus language, or not even trying to see him or yield to him at all? Just blatantly living my own way. And if so, I want to ask you this morning, would you give your heart to him? Would you yield your life to him? And would you let the Holy Spirit make him Lord in your life?